Yeah, we so we just got back from dim sum, and uh, that was uh, for me. It was an educational experience because I had thought that I had had dim sum in the past, but it turns out that it was just regular old dumplings, um, and uh, it's <laughs> it's a lot, more, which is like probably the most white thing ever. <laughs> uh, but it was really good. I'm I appreciate the suggestion. It's good. It's good. That's the whole point. What did you like best? We got a whole bunch of stuff. A whole bunch of stuff. Like we were the 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 table was just totally covered. Yeah. Well, let me ask you: Did you like the duck tongue? Not especially. No. <laughs> the pig intestine, the deep fried. No, pig that wasn't for no, me. No, no. 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 What, is it the texture, or the taste? It's got a pretty mild taste to it, actually, on its own. Like it had it had a mild taste that I wasn't anticipating that I I didn't not like, but also it wasn't something that I would like go back to. Oh, okay. Voluntarily. Okay. All right. Fair so, enough. Yeah. Um, but the cuttlefish you liked. Cuttlefish I liked. Um, the duck you liked. The duck I loved. That was great. Um, that was probably my favorite, like, meat only yeah. thing. Yeah. So that that restaurant there is known for their duck. Yep. And that's why I got it, because I figured maybe you want to try it. Sure. And it's yeah. done, like, Asian style. So it's basically, like, just covered in salt and then... And then cooked until the the skin is crispy, super crispy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed, but at the bottom of the plate, there's like a pool of duck grease, yeah. and if you dip the meat in it, it's like super salty, but also super good. <laughs> the one dish I was surprised you really liked was it was the um, is a Chinese donut. The Chinese yeah. donut that's wrapped in rice flour. Yeah, that's a very like traditional dim sum dish, mm. but it also tends to be I think on the boring end of things. Oh yeah, yeah. because it's it's deep fried flour covered in rice basically yeah but i mean and like, dipped in soy sauce maybe it was just because we were having it at like 10 30 in the morning and right, uh, it's naturally a naturally it's like uh my my brain is going is looking for donut slash pastry type stuff at that time of the day but mm-hmm. um no i i really like that and then, then the other one it was the um uh the pork and shrimp i guess it was a dumpling of some kind yeah yeah, yeah. sao mai or siu mai depending on where you're from right yeah, that one's a very traditional one too. Have you noticed that like basically all the dumplings we ordered had shrimp in them? Some yeah, there's a lot of shrimp. Yeah, yeah. Is that I a thing know. or or is I, that was that just a, kind of a fluke? No, it's not a fluke. Um, a lot of dumplings tend to be either shrimp or pork, but at that particular price, for for whatever reason, a lot of it's shrimp. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. No, I liked it, and like we're planning to have uh, Taiwanese food uh, later on today, so. Uh, um, I'm getting a, I'm getting a, just a total like cultural immersion <laughs> as far as I can get in uh, here in well, Vancouver. If you come to Vancouver and you don't have time to go sightsee, cause some of the places that you have to get to take a while, Vancouver is known for its Asian food. So anytime yeah. people come here, I'm always like, screw the food you can get at home. Yep. Try something really different here. Yeah. Including the sushi, which I think is better than most places I've been to all across Canada or even the U.S. Yeah. Just the the quality of the fish. And uh, for anybody who has no idea what we're talking about, uh, this is a special episode um, because I am actually here in Vancouver for the first time. We're not doing a a podcast separated by about (laughs) 3,000 kilometers. And so on that note, let's get the show going. Yeah. Welcome to episode 39 of the Extra Buttery Podcast, being recorded live here in Vancouver for the first time. Um, Little on-site podcast recording today, special episode. 
in today's episode, we're going to be talking uh, pretty much the movies from uh, November, all of the highlights that uh, Jason and I have been uh, have been seeing the past uh, couple of weeks. So we're going to be talking Suspiria, Venom, Creed 2, Wreck-It Ralph 2, Ralph Breaks the Internet, and uh, capping things off with... Grindelwald. Oh, yeah, okay. Grindelwald. We'll, we'll talk about Grindelwald, but yes, um, special, special episode because I'm sitting two, three feet from Rob. Yes. He's in Vancouver, finally, after his last trip got cut short because he had yes. to get his wisdom teeth checked out, Yep. which was a, a whole other story we'll get to some other time, maybe. Yep. But this is great because I haven't seen Rob since when? Uh, Carlton? Pretty much, yeah, so like five years. Wow, that's it's been that long, eh? Yeah, like face to face. Like obviously, like we've uh, we've been working on the podcast for a couple of years now, so uh, you know you get these these long conversations uh, recorded. But uh, but yeah, it's uh, um, Vancouver's far away from Toronto, man. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so next time I'll be the one going to Toronto, and and we'll we'll see if we can do this. Maybe like an annual thing or buy. Yeah, thing. yeah, that'd be. Cool. I think that'd be really cool. Yeah. Anyway, here we are in my dining room yeah in a sort of overcast gloomy day in vancouver yeah anyway let's let's get to the meat of it i think rob wants to talk about suspiria you have to decide what is it you want to be for this company there's more in that building than what you can see doctor you are living with dangerous people yeah so like for a Suspiria is one of those movies that um, I haven't seen the original, which is probably going to offend all the people out there who are hardcore fans of it. You're not doing something right unless you offend someone. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, So Suspiria, uh, famously, it's a it's one of those kind of like it's kind of like the Citizen Kane of uh, horror films for some people. Um, Directed by this guy, Dario Argento, back in the 70s, Italian film. Um, very famous director. Very famous director. You know, he he kind of made a name for himself with these brightly colored, intense um, films that were kind of straddling the line between horror and thriller. Always very violent. For the longest time, the original Suspiria had a reputation for being one of the most violent slash gory films of the period. A couple of decades go by, and none other than Luca Guagnanino, his name I'm probably butchering, uh, the director of Call Me By Your Name, which was a bit of an Oscar darling this past uh, Oscar season, um, he decides that he's going to remake Suspiria. But not remake in the way that we think about it in Hollywood, more like um, a spiritual successor or a version of the film that borrows heavily from the original but almost builds on some of the the key ideas and almost takes them further than the original film did. It is it's quite an experience. It's like two and a half hours. It's it by the time it builds up towards the end, it is hyper violent. Um, almost more than I have a taste for. Wait, is it hyper violent or is it just body horror gore? More like body horror gore, actually. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you're you're just getting like uh, people uh, ripping each other apart, that kind of stuff. Lots of blood going everywhere. But the the basic plot is uh, in 1980s Berlin, a young American dancer played by Dakota Johnson um, moves from her sort of uh, religious fundamentalist family in uh, the prairies in uh, in the United States to Berlin to join this elite dance company headed up by uh, Madame Blanc, played by Tilda Swinton. 
And uh, the longer she spends in this kind of like concrete, gray, ugly Berlin uh, environment, uh, learning the ways of the dance company, she slowly discovers that uh, basically the dance company is the front for a coven of witches. And it just descends into this absolute, like, insane um, series of you're not sure if, like, Dakota Johnson's character is uh, isn't is trying to escape from the witches or whether she wants to join them. It's it's really creepy. There's a, the, the, uh, for fans of the original, all of that those themes will feel very familiar. But um, I think this is kind of updating it and kind of bringing it to a, to a new audience. Um, so yeah, if if it horror is your thing, definitely worth worth checking out. Um, but definitely uh, kind of weigh how how much of a taste you have for gore before you go in because the uh, the final the final scene in particular is, is taking things. Up. Yeah, this is a movie I'll probably never be able to watch. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the, in, the probably the most interesting like thematic thing in it is. Uh, like relationships between mothers and daughters. That's like the biggest, uh, the biggest thing that you kind of uh, think about when you when you leave the theater. What, like questioning what the relationship between Dakota Johnson and Tilda Swinton's character is, um, how it kind of is an evolution of the relationship that Dakota Johnson's character had with her mother um, before she came to Berlin. Um, there's this kind of uh, omnipresent uh, background action happening with uh, some uh, terrorism that was happening in Berlin in the 80s that I didn't know about. I had to like, do a whole Wikipedia binge to, uh, to understand the rights of it. Is it a very nuanced movie, like plot and character-wise? No, it's very out there. It's very out there. We're talking camera work where the the camera will kind of like, it'll do these Tarantino style, like huge camera moves where they'll be like zooming in at kind of like a wonky, uh, wonky pace, like vroom, right in on a character. And then they'll pull out and they'll whip the camera around in this really exaggerated way and zoom in on some like random thing sitting on a wall. And uh, you're kind of like it's almost like the uh, the director is kind of grabbing you by the head and kind of like forcing your head around. Right. It's, okay. It's it's very in your face. So it's very I think quite different from Call Me by Your Name. Oh yeah, yeah. And that that's probably you know if you liked Call Me by Your Name and there were things about the direction and the writing in that that uh, really grabbed you and you you've become kind of like a uh, a latter day fan of Guadagnino. Mm-hmm. It's where it's. It's kind of interesting to see what he does with this because it shows how uh, how versatile he is as, as a director. Right. Okay, fair enough. Um, I didn't see Suspiria, but I did see uh, sort of... Another monstrous type of yeah, thing? Yeah, another monstrous type of thing. kind of horror slash thriller, depending on how you view comic book movies. <laughs> because some of them are so bad, they literally are horror shows. Right, right. But Venom is not one of them. Yeah. I thoroughly enjoyed it, actually. We cannot just hurt people. Look into my eyes, Eddie. The way I see it. We can do whatever we want. Do we have a deal? So this is really strange to me because I saw the uh, the Twitter reaction when the movie came out yes. and a few people were saying that it was just absolute trash and <laughs> funny trash. Like they yes. said it was like the it was it was a poorly made film that just happened to be funny, and they were trying to figure out whether that was intentional or not. And then there were some people who said that they they kind of legitimately enjoyed it. Like yes. it wasn't even a so bad it's good kind of thing. Like they mm-hmm. could, they they kind of appreciated the movie for 
doing something different and weird. Yeah. Okay. So like, it probably helps that I went in the movie with fairly low expectations. Sure. Um, I think that's my MO these days is to go into movies. I used to be all about like reading as much as I can before going into a movie. I used to not mind plot spoilers. Now I'm a little more weary. Okay. But I definitely went in with, with not a lot and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought it was funny. I thought it was exciting when it needed to be. Mm-hmm. I thought Tom Hardy's performance. So if you've seen him in, in movies where he pulls off two roles or two or more roles, he's actually quite good. And he is tasked with doing the same with Venom, where he's equal parts Eddie Brock and equal parts of Venom. And so that dynamic really carries the movie. I will criticize the movie for its pacing, its cheesy dialogue, and it falls into the trap of having like a big final fight where it's just a mess of CGI and you don't really know what's going on. So those are the three kind of traps it falls into. But I didn't dock away a lot of points because I don't think it ever tried to be something it's not. So it's a it's a superhero film, yes, but it's also an origin story that, you know, sees a character basically hit rock bottom and then finds his purpose in life. And it does so in a way that somewhat makes some sense, you know. And um, I think part of its charm is also that it, it, it's, it knows when it's being silly sometimes. Okay. Okay. Well, that's valuable. Yes. And I agree with everyone. I can, I can understand why objectively as a film it doesn't work. But at the same time, if you just take it for what it is, if you go in, shut your mind off for two hours, which is, by the way, the perfect length for a comic book film. Yeah, two hours versus two. Yeah, two hours. Yeah. Exactly. Um, if you go in with ex- that, that kind of expectations, I think it's really enjoyable. The end credit scene is one of the better ones I've seen because it actually introduces a character that was not seen during the the, sto- the film itself. Right. The, kind the, of the, 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 true, the true Iron Man kind of style where, he, you know, Nick Fury wasn't seen at all in Iron Man, but then he shows up in the end credit scene kind of saying like, no, there's more. To yeah. More yeah. To and without spoiling too much, I mean, it's already a known fact, but it's Woody Harrelson in that extra scene, in that end, end credit scene. Who's he, well, who's he playing, though? Uh, Cletus Cassidy. Oh, okay. Who is another comic book villain. And they set him up as basically the, sec- the villain for the sequel, which I think I'm positive will get made. Um, and that really sets up a really interesting dynamic because I think Woody Harrelson is excellent, especially as a potential villain. And He's great when he's gone all crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Two things, two more things I want to add. Michelle Williams, I think, doesn't have a lot to work with. I was going to ask you about her, yeah. Yeah, so she has some really cheesy lines in there, but she does manage to pull it off. Okay. But at the same time, it's, I think it, her character is not so well developed, but I can see why she wants to do it because it seems like fun. And at one point she does get infected by this like slimy goo and becomes like a female version of Venom. Oh, okay. The other one is Riz Ahmed who plays like this Elon Musk-esque um, <laughs> philanthropist. Um, scientist, tech genius, kind of something like that. And he's got like a a science division and like a space shuttle division and everything. And he's, I think one note shy of being like a mustache twirling type villain. Okay. Okay. But at the same time, I think he fully embraces the fact that he's this really unlikable caricature even. Right. And so he plays it up a little bit, but he does a good job of it. Okay. Uh, Well, who's the guy that played the, 
the um, side character in Nightcrawler with Jake Gyllenhaal. Oh, well, that was Riz Ahmed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it, it's really interesting to see the type of range he has. Oh, yeah. He has. Yeah, I love Riz Ahmed. Yeah, he he's, he's yeah. really, really good. He did this great uh, noir film or neo-noir film set in London uh, that nobody saw. It came to TIFF last year. Mm-hmm. Um, it was called uh, City of Tiny Lights. Mm-hmm. And he like shaved his head. He was wearing this leather jacket. Um, and it was like a, a hard-boiled detective movie with a undercurrent of the racial tensions in London right. and how like, you know, Riz Ahmed came from uh, the, uh, I believe his, his, uh, he's like Pakistani, I think maybe in uh, origin. Right. Um, so like the, the kind of simmering racial tensions in, in the city of London between like the, uh, the ethnically English people and the, and the Middle Eastern immigrants and stuff like that. Um, so that, that was a really good film. And, and like he, he nailed that. He nailed the kind of like the guy in Nightcrawler. Oh, who, he's insecure. He's, he's mousy. Mousy. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's a perfect way of, of describing it. Um, and and then in this one in Venom he's like now the the actual villain. Yes, I actually encourage you to see it, Rob, because I'm curious what do you th- what you think about it. I do think this is one of those films where the the critics and the films are very divided, and I can see the merit from both sides. So it really just depends on your personal biases coming into this film. Sure, I mean I think I I will definitely wait. I'll wait until it hits streaming probably, but uh, right. Um, yeah, I was, I was curious about it throughout development. The one thing that I'm still wondering about though, has any, has anything been sorted out with regard to where this character or this Venom universe that they're trying to build fits in with the other existing characters? Because okay. Venom, Venom is owned by Sony, isn't he? Is, is the character I don't even know how it works, but this is basically a joint production between Sony and Marvel. Okay. Um, in the same way that Spider-Man Homecoming was? Like, is it possible for this uh, version of Venom to be... I don't think it's part of the MCU. Okay. But the one thing I will say is that um, J. Jonah Jameson's kid, I can't remember his first name. Okay. He's the astronaut that brings the Venom symbiote from space onto Earth. Okay. And he, that character, Jameson's kid, actually appears in Spider-Man 2 or 3. Oh, the Sam Raimi films. Yes, the Sam Raimi films. So there is the connection with Spider-Man, but then there's never any overt references or even, I don't even think there are any like gimmicky references to MCU or Tom Holland Spider-Man. Okay, okay. So I am interested to see how that kind of comes about, but I think it would probably be best for Sony to just stick with the Venom universe. Yeah. Create their universe uh, sort of their own rather than trying to latch onto the MCU. Yeah, because I'd be curious to see what they could do with like a second or a third film and keep it self-contained. And then maybe once that thing was like self-sufficient for a little while, then maybe you could do like a blockbuster kind of reveal and an end credit scene of like one of the sequels saying yeah. like, no, it was actually part of the MCU this whole time. But Yeah, I mean, the, the MCU has gotten so far, so big and the story for the MCU has progressed so often that it would be impossible for um, Venom um, or the journalist Eddie Brock to not know the events right. of the Avengers. Yeah, even though it does take place in San Francisco, moving away from New York. Right, and there are parts where he references his stay in New York and working for the Daily Bugle as a reporter. Okay, blah blah blah. But yeah, it, I I think I think it helps that you they distance themselves from that a little bit, or at least didn't try to make a connection with it. Sure, I mean, there's nothing uh, you know. 
people talk up the the value of like a shared universe all the time, and obviously Hollywood is obsessed with it. But except for the monsters one, the, yeah, the the, uh, the dark universe one. Um, but you look at what. And this is it's, it's such a weird thing that I'm actually like comparing this favorably to the DC universe, which is such a mess right now. <laughs> but you can actually look at the way the DC films are being handled as sort of a, an interesting experiment. Like they they're doing like the Elseworlds kind of stuff where they're kind of embracing the idea of a multiverse and the, the fact that they can have stories that are happening that are their own self-sufficient little yes. worlds that don't necessarily have to be connected. Yes. Um, case in point, the Harley Quinn movie that Margot Robbie is working on. The fantabulous yeah. Harley Quinn, you mean? Yeah. So the, uh, this, she tweeted out an image of the, uh, the first page of the screenplay a little while back. And it was like, uh, birds of prey colon, um, also known as the fantabulous escape of one Harley Quinn or something. It's really long. Fantastic comic book title. Terrible title for a movie. I can't see them sticking with that all the way through to release. Like, well, speaking of bad titles, I don't know if you want to move on. The wizarding and non-wizarding worlds have been at peace for over a century. Grindelwald wants to see that peace destroyed. You want me to hunt him down? To kill him? Yeah, we're talking uh, Fantastic Beasts. Yes. Um, and where to find Grindelwald? No. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Why couldn't they just call it Crimes of Grindelwald? Because of Brandon. It's not even Fantastic Beasts, the Crimes of Grindelwald. It's like Wizarding World. No, it's Fantastic Beasts, colon. But it's the part of the Wizarding World universe. Yeah, so when you first, when you watch the movie, you get a title card for the actual movie, and then you get um, Wizarding World yes. as, like, its own title card. Yes. Um, because that was the only, like, that was their compromise. They couldn't call it the Harry Potter universe if yes. the stories are taking place, like, decades before yeah. Harry Potter so was born. So we didn't see this together, but I feel like, I think both of us had similar reactions to this. By the way, if you haven't read it yet, Rob's review of Grindelwald is on kinetoscope.ca. But Rob, just like recap what you uh, okay, what you well, felt about the movie. Um, it's actually good. To, it's good that we we started by talking about the title because the title kind of uh, teases the title kind of teases one of the core problems of the movie, which is it is a very cynical effort in branding. Where <laughs> you know they couldn't call the movie just the Crimes of Grindelwald; they had to put the Fantastic Beast thing in yes. there as as a kind of like a, a help helper kind of thing to the audiences that don't recognize it out of the gate, but they should. I mean, anybody who's been a hardcore fan of these, of the books and now the movies for decades, um, they already know the movies are coming out. They don't need to be helped by some little branding thing in the title. Anyway, basically, yeah, this is like this whole experience. You, if you wanted to save time and money, stay at home, open up some tabs in Pottermore <laughs> or fandom or whatever, uh, Wikipedia, whatever site you like to collect pointless ephemera about movies just read through a bunch of tabs. I'm sure there's some fan out there who's already written up the plot across a couple of tabs. They've updated the Albus Dumbledore page. Um, just read that, put on a podcast, put on this podcast, <laughs> listen to something completely different. You'll maximize your time efficiency and uh, you'll have the exact same experience because this movie, Crimes of Grindelwald, is just a, it just hops all over the place narratively. Yes. They've got, they cram in so many characters. They've got five or six plot threads going. Yes. They don't have time to develop any of the character motivations. Even though it's branded as a character-driven story. Well, sure, anything can be character-driven. It doesn't mean it's well-driven. <laughs> yeah, okay, you know? fair enough. Good yeah. point, good point. Um, 
Yeah, so you can you can say that it's character driven, um, but there's just too many. Like they they introduce uh, this uh, Nicholas Flamel character who was name dropped in the in the very first Harry Potter story um, as this like immortal wizard who yes. developed the Philosopher's Stone slash Sorcerer's Stone, depending on what. Did he find it? I don't think he developed it. Didn't he? I don't know. He was an alchemist, so yes. he, he unlocked the secret to to immortality by harnessing this this stone and um, the. So they, the character pops up in this movie as kind of like a, you know, just naked fan service. And he, you know, he's in one scene and then he pops up at the end. And that seems to be the theme across this whole movie is like characters will pop up. They're used just for like, oh, the fan, for the fans to recognize them. And then they go away again. Um, and the, I would say the thing that hurts, uh, the character relationship that this hurts the most is actually that of Queenie who people will, will remember from the first Fantastic Beasts movie. She was probably one of the best parts about yeah. the first one. Uh, what's the actress's name? Alison uh, Sudol. Alison Sudol. So she's the one who has the ability to read minds, and she's the sister of the Catherine Watterson character um, that uh, Nude is kind of interested in. So she, in, in the, over the course of this movie, one of the many subplots is that she's worried that she won't be able to marry... Um, her boyfriend, played by Dan Fogler, because Dan Fogler is a nomad. You know, he's a muggle, can't use magic. Um, there's, like, laws about this stuff. And they, the movie kind of tries to say that this is the, the magical version, 19, 1920s magical version of, like, a ban against gay marriage or right, something. Right, right. Um, but it doesn't really do that very well. No. It's kind of It's kind of a flimsy comparison. It is. Um, so then Grindelwald steps up as this villain character, and the reason he's a villain is because he wants to, uh, to make it so that uh, people who use magic, wizards and witches, uh, are the supreme race, the supreme people people on earth they subjugate all he's of the, basically the Voldemort without the Voldemorty things yeah uh, or a Donald Trump which we'll get into um, <laughs> so the, back to Queenie's Queenie kind of towards in a sort of weird twist about two-thirds of the way through the movie she gets kidnapped by one of Grindelwald's people and then yes. just starts believing in his promises about how you know she, that he's going to make w- wizards all powerful and he's going to allow wizards to marry non-wizards and so of course this means a lot to her because she thinks that she can have her her wet marriage to uh, the the Dan Fogler character, the Jacob character, um, happen without a hitch. And so but see, that logically doesn't make any sense because if Grindelwald meets Dan Fogler's character, wouldn't he just kill him on the spot for being a nomad? Like like if anybody who's going to turn, it should have been Tina. She's been jilted by by oh, uh, yeah. Newt, right? She doesn't have a nomad boyfriend. She's an Auror. So we know the history of auras and the and the basically dark side of magic. So it always made more sense. And I think a more interesting character arc for Newt, if his love interest is on the other side. Sure. Yeah. yeah. But then, uh, but yeah, as it is, like it doesn't. The, there is a scene where Grindelwald says that says to uh, Queenie that she'd be able to marry whoever she wants. But it does kind of run counter to. It, but it, it like it goes over your head, right? Because there's so many minutiae that J.K. Rowling wants you to pay attention to. Yeah. And she's desperately trying to to make Grindelwald seem like a Trump-like character, you know, because we all know that J.K. Rowling, you know, when she's not writing screenplays for these movies or <laughs> or whatever, very active on Twitter, very active on Twitter, and she will she's very militant about targeting uh, Trump supporters and kind of yelling at them, and uh, you know they mention her back and she mentions them, and it just it's just flame war all the time. Um, so she very 
very obviously is holding up this Grindelwald character as like a Trump proxy. He's even got like crazy hair. He has rallies, like political rallies, just like Trump does. Um, and then so Queenie kind of aligns herself with him in this climactic scene, um, which is kind of like, uh, I guess you could say it's almost like the equivalent of um, a family member buying a MAGA hat. I guess. But I have to say, like, that final scene with the final fight makes zero sense, which you kind of talked about in your review. Yeah. It's it's so confusing as to what's going on and yeah. what each character's motivations are. Oh, yeah. Like, uh, she kind of, she steps through this, like, blue ring of fire that's supposed to, like, kill any non-believers or something. And, you know, she gets sucked up into a magical spell that kind of apparates her elsewhere. Um, but then other people are dying and then the, the blue fire turns into like this dragon that's like threatening to destroy Paris. And then Nicholas Flamel shows up randomly and he's like, I know how to fix it. Yeah. So my, my two biggest problems with Grindelwald one, I hate paying money and end up watching a two and a half hour trailer for fantastic beasts, three, four and five, which is basically so exposition heavy. And I know they're trying to lay the groundwork for everything, but I think this this is J.K. Rowling's shortcomings as a screenwriter is that you can have five or six different threads in books, which she does in Harry Potter, and tie it all together at the end. But in a movie, it doesn't work that way. In movies, things move too fast. You can't go over and reread a sentence like yes, a book. Yes, that's an excellent point. Yeah, and so you, you have to hang on to every detail. And if you're a Harry Potter fan, that's great. What I also didn't like, point number two, is that she actively changes canon. And that's been set up by the Harry Potter books. That I absolutely cannot forgive because this is like George Lucas going back to Star Wars and changing the narrative, changing the story arc of characters. We saw what happened with Luke Skywalker. And I feel like what's happening to Albus Dumbledore's story and his whole family background, I think we're going to see a lot of changes. Unless the twist at the end of Grindelwald is a is is misleading on purpose, right? I sus- fully suspect that because the Harry Potter films had dealt with mature themes as it went on, and Grindelwald obviously is again continuing those mature themes, I would not be surprised if a couple key characters from this current core get killed off at some point. Sure, yeah, I think it only makes sense to kill some of them off. The, the 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 danger of death is only there if you can kill off significant characters and not be allowed to bring them back to life. I think Grindelwald has a huge pacing problem. I love the production value. I love all the Fantastic Beasts. The best part of the movie is when Newt goes into the basement of his home and it's basically like a zoo, a, like a magical zoo where he has every single creature possible, every creature you can think of. And it's it's such a wonderful sight to see, but then it's you start getting bogged down by details. Yeah, like we only spend about five minutes there. You get you you kind of get like this. Well, I described I used this phrase when I was uh, describing the the first Fantastic Beast because these movies have a way of like giving a Harry Potter fan a shot of heroin to the arm, where they're yeah. just like pure information, like just filling the screen with all kinds of cool details that. Uh, we previously didn't know were possible in, mm-hmm. in the universe, you know, um, and you can kind of obsess over these details and, and just like suck them up. Um, but it happens so quickly and in such a volume in that scene. And then we don't really get, 
you, it doesn't it doesn't revisit any of those those ideas later on like the kelpie for example like yeah. it plays they they play up the the idea of him hanging out with the kelpie in a lot of the marketing but you never see it again can i also just mention that eddie redmayne who plays news commander and Catherine waterston who plays tina they don't have much chemistry on screen no, not a whole. They, I don't even. I can't even name one scene where I was like, "Oh, it's only about these two characters." Yeah. The love story that made the most sense, or or that was actually the most interesting to me, was Queenie with um, Jacob, Jacob yeah. Dan Fogler. And even then, I don't. I didn't particularly like what they did with Dan Fogler's character. He was there for comic relief and a comic relief only. Yeah. He tagged along. He wasn't really essential to the story like he was in the first film. And he, he could have, that love story, or even his entire character, could have been cut out from Grunderwald, and you would have had the exact same film. Oh, yeah. And uh, you really notice it in the, the build-up to that rally scene, where yes. they, they all converge at this um, main location, this uh, cemetery. cemetery, mausoleum of the Lestrange family. And then, even though one of the characters that they discover there, it's the guy from uh, the African nation... Um, he's ready to kill Credence, uh, played by Ezra Miller. Yes. But then they manage to like convince him not to, and then they have like a twenty minute scene or what feels like twenty minutes where they're literally talking about wizarding family trees. Yes. And they tell potential theories about Credence's parentage in like two or three different ways. Which also like none of it makes any sense, eh? I was so confused. I was like, who, like, just tell me who the kid's mother and father are, for heaven's sake. Yeah, and I, I, I think there's more to be revealed. I think it's J.K. Rowling's, like, way to give you, like, a little crumb every time. Yeah, it's, it's the same way she did with the books. Like, the first three books, they'll drop little hints, and then she'll reveal the full meaning in, like, books five, six, and seven. Sure. The one thing about Rowling with the Harry Potter is that everything made sense. Everything made logical sense. There's a logical progression of things. When it came to the story of Credence Barebone and how he um, became to be what he is today, um, I'll have to go into spoilers for this. But anyway, there's there's a part where two babies are exchanged on a boat, a refugee boat of some kind. It is very coincidental to me that the two babies who are swapped by accident, not even like um like knowing who who the babies were um that these two babies came from a long line of pure blood wizarding families like what are the odds that a baby that switched with supposedly another random baby yeah happens, it to, be. happens to be like a major 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 driving force in the ma- in the history of magic I feel it's too far too coincidental. Maybe there is a bigger story to this, but I think that's lazy screenwriting. Sure, yeah, because it's one thing to write a screenplay all the way through and then go back in a later screenplay and just retcon it or say yes. like, oh, we deliberately withheld this information. It's probably not true. It's probably you wrote the screenplay one way and then you decided to, to, change, like to change something later on to make it work better for your, your follow-up screenplay. Yes. And I, th- I feel like... Just in general, people with fiction, doesn't matter if it's a, a play or a novel or a movie or whatever, um, when people are, are absorbing that fiction or that change later on, they feel cheated. It's, it's something that's kind of really basic to fiction. You just don't, you shouldn't do that without making your audience feel like they've been deceived unnecessarily. Yeah. And I hate myself now because I'm so invested in this universe. I have to see the sequel to, to see what happens. So I mean, I good luck to them. 
it's not going to be anything like the Harry Potter movies. I mean, going back to comparison to Star Wars, we I think we talked about how the new films, the new trilogy, plays around with the rules of the Force. Yeah. I feel the same way with magic in this movie, where there is nothing short of like bringing people back to life that Newt can't do. There's a part where he starts blowing gold dust all over the place to basically recreate a crime scene. Yeah, yeah. And okay, I get it. I'll give you like a certain amount of leeway because it's magic. But at the same time, I feel like you really need to set the rules for this. Harry Potter was really great in that sense because there, it was clearly a rules-based um, sort of magic world. But well, I mean, I see what you're saying, but like, is it rules-based or was it just that we were dealing with characters who weren't fully trained in magic? Good question. Fair point. But I think even looking at the adult characters in the Harry Potter universe, I don't think lack of schooling was um, what held the magical elements back. Right, yeah. I think, if anything, the the books um, showed that there was a lot of magic that Harry Potter didn't know about, but us as readers knew, um, especially when it, uh, when it comes to like Horcruxes, where we learn along with Harry, right. or certain elements of the story about... Um, Voldemort and whatnot that Harry doesn't know, but we know. So maybe you're right. It it could be that there's a limitation in what, uh, from the POV of the characters in the original Harry Potter films, um, can be quite limited. But this one, I think, blew it wide open. There's nothing they couldn't do. Yeah, that's a good point. And like, um, that there are examples too of like, you know, certain spells being cast with, you know, you don't see a wand, you don't see any of anybody saying any magical words. And I know that, I know that they dealt with that yes. in, um, in, uh, one of the, the books or the movies yes. from the Harry Potter universe where they explain that like, you can do magic without either of them, but it, it almost gets a bit lazy after a while yes. because things just start happening and yes. you just have to intuit that it's somebody using magic. Yes. Um, yeah. So overall, it just feels like we're kind of helplessly being dragged along through this uh, this experience of like multiple movies, and uh, it was a frustrating movie to watch. Yeah, frustrating to watch. I there's a limit to how how much of this kind of setup that I'm willing to take in movie form. Like it, the, that's what like the first movie in a, mm-hmm. in a series is for, not like the second movie or the third movie. Like, yes. Um, how much how much uh, groundwork needs to be laid for you to actually tell a straightforward story yes um so yeah it's um now for you know any harry potter fans listening or uh, well, what do we call potter fans now because is are they like wizarding worlders or something that we can is potter mania still a thing I, I struggle with this i don't know i'd still consider it potter universe okay so for people out there who like that who literally watch watch anything that comes out read any book um spend like two weeks at the theme park in Florida, whatever. Um, all of our criticisms are kind of moot because you're going to see it anyway. You're probably going to see it multiple times, but suffice it to say that these things could be a whole lot better than they are. And, uh, it's, it's kind of disappointing. Yeah. Yeah. You know what was good though? Creed two. Yes. Yes. Victor Drago, son of Ivan Drago, who infamously killed Apollo Creed, appeared today to issue a challenge to Adonis Creed. Don't do this. I ain't got a choice. That's the same thing your father said, and he died right here in my hands. And we went to see this together. We did. We saw this yesterday on the day that we're recording this, and um, 
I mean, I, I love the first Creed. You I did? thought, you know, there's a lot of... Ex- I love the Rocky movies. So. There's a lot of expectation going into the first Creed because not only were you dealing with something that we've seen a lot more recently where they'll circle back around and do a sequel several decades later with new characters and the old characters will show up in, ca- in cameos. Or there's, there was like, there's expectations going into those movies and Creed delivered on those expectations. Not all movies do. Because there was a fair amount of skepticism too. Sure. Because they're like, Rocky did five movies. Now you're bringing in the Creed, which is a very predictable, I think, storyline. But they pulled it off. Yeah. And just through a a really solid combination of cinematography, really good writing, um, great performances from Michael B. Jordan and uh, Sly Stallone um, and Tessa Thompson. And creating a character for specifically Tessa Thompson to play, who isn't just... Who's an evolution of the role that um, uh, that uh, of Adrian from the original Rocky movies, where she was kind of like just the supportive girlfriend slash wife. Now in this one, you get the sense that Tessa Thompson is more of an actual person. She has yes. her own her own stuff to do, her own uh, in, life outside of the ring. In some ways, her story is just as interesting as Michael B. Jordan's. Yep. So whatever made Creed the first Creed successful, crank it up. And that's what you get with Creed 2, because not only do you get Tessa Thompson's interesting story arc, you get uh, Sylvester Stallone's story arc of his own. Yep. And you also get uh, Drago's um, storyline of her of his own. And then you have Adonis Creed's mom coming in, in and out, and she kind of brings in her own sort of POV into this movie, and it all meshes together, and now you're left in basically Michael B. Jordan's shoes, where you really have to decide what's important. And uh, in, in both boxing and life, and you see him progress from a young man who's just who thinks he's at the top of the world to getting broken to coming back again with a different kind of purpose, which is basically the formula of every Rocky movie. Yeah, but they do it so well. It just yeah, super well it, executed. It it, it 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 just flows really nicely too. It's a two and a half hour movie, I think. Two, uh, more like two ten. Two ten. Okay. But they accomplish so much in that two hours and ten minutes, and they build up everything so well that by the time the final set is the stage for the final set, uh, fight is set, you, you almost can't wait to get to it. And they really tease out that process leading up to the final fight. It doesn't have the best training montage, <laughs> which kind of was like a bit of a disappointment on my end because I love those. I think they're hilarious. I mean, you see them and they're like, yeah, training montage, training montage. Yes. That's the way my brain works when I see them. But yeah, like, exactly. You know, it, it's a way for a movie to kind of like kill some time. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. but it's also tradition in rock. It is tradition. Too. Yeah. So and, and in a lot, lot of sports sport. movies, too, where you need a training montage. We saw in Batman v Superman, Batman had a training montage. <laughs> Dragging those yeah. truck tires. And, yeah. yeah. And so you have uh, things sort of get in the plot. Things sort of get complicated in Michael B. Jordan's life because he ends up having a baby. Um, There's this whole like um, additional detail about how, and this is something I, I forgot about Tessa Thompson's character. Her character has got, got like hearing loss. Yes. And she's a musician too. And she's a musician. But then they, they start to worry that when they decide to have a daughter, the daughter is going to suffer from hearing loss as well. Um, and then that's like a... You know, some people might complain that that there's an aspect of like just using a disability as like a sure I get that a, as like a a story element, but but it's meant to humanize. It's meant to humanize. I think it's a great example of representation because people will say that you know there's not enough examples of realistic 
uh, portrayal of disability mm-hmm. in big Hollywood movies. Yes. Um, you know, or a case where people just have something. It's not the point of the movie. Yeah. Um, the fighting is awesome, by the way. Yeah, fighting is awesome. I, I would say I, I think I like Ryan Coogler's choreography better than... What, what's the name of the guy who directed this sequel? Um, Capel? Steve Capel? Yeah. I, I don't think I've seen anything by him before now. Uh, obviously, he's getting a, a pretty big boost in his career if he's uh, being handed a, a sequel like this. I believe Capel and Coogler were classmates at USC. Oh, okay, cool. So that, that's how... Um, this came about, like how he ended up being director. Like, I can't really think of a fault with this movie. I'm really always hesitant to give up perfect scores. So on a four scale, this is definitely a four for me. On a five scale, it's a four and a half. I don't know if it's a five. There are times where I think maybe the pacing could be tightened just a little bit. Yep. But overall, I had zero complaints. Really fun movie. I think this movie is going to get awards consideration. It might, yeah. 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 Because the Oscars, they love boxing movies, eh? Like, if there's any sports trauma that catches their attention, it's always boxing. Yeah. There's something about boxing, about watching people getting beat up physically and then coming back. Yeah. Something like a redemption arc. And it's so, like, obvious and easy to understand. Yeah. It plays well with, like, American audiences. They they, they just love that kind of stuff. And it it even carries carries through to, like, other, like, drama films that become Oscar bait where, you know, the, the underdog story, the, yes, the underdog story. Yes. Uh, um, the Aaron Brockovich's of the world. Yes. You know, people love that stuff. The Oscar voters love that. That's actually one interesting point because Creed, as we learn in the movie, he becomes a heavyweight champion of the world, but leading into the final fight, he feels and is the underdog. Yeah. Which is an interesting dynamic that they managed to like finagle out of this thing. Fantastic. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. Um, probably one of the best sports movies I've ever seen. Really? Yes. Wow. Okay. Um, now, I mean, I, I, have a, I have a much... Uh, sports movies aren't that complicated, though. They're right? not complicated, but like, I haven't seen as many of them as you have. Because obviously, like, you're the, <laughs> There's you're a lot the, of bad you're the bigger sports You're the bigger sports fan by, by uh, head and shoulders. But um, no, the... I, I can I can still confirm that like I I thoroughly enjoyed it myself. I'm not at a four and a half out of five. I'm more at a four. Why is that? Why why like are you so like? Because I was surprised because we both walked out and we we're like, wow, this was fantastic. Yeah. So I'm um, curious as to what happened to that star or that half star. I think honestly, for me, it's just the genre. Like it's something oh, okay. that like um you know I I like sports movies, but I don't I don't get quite as amped up about them as right. I would about like for me like. My my favorite genres are stuff like espionage and sci-fi and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Um, so a sports movie, like because I'm not watching sports super often, maybe I don't respond to it quite as excitedly. I definitely see the craft on display there, and I appreciate everything that went into it. Um, performance is all fantastic. Performance is all, all fantastic. I, Everyone. I really hope um, Tessa Thompson gets a best supporting. Uh, thing she or, should she or really maybe, should if not that maybe maybe like a th- shout out for uh, her song that she sings uh, one, yeah, she, sure. she has like two songs that she performs yeah. in the in the yeah. movie and um, uh, she should get nominated for like uh, in the best song category it depends on the competition this year yeah I Stars Born is going to eat up a lot but yeah I suspect a lot of supporting actresses or a lot of actresses are going to get supporting actress nods mm. That's going to be a tough category, as it is usually every year. Yep. 
um, best support, best actress would be a lot tougher call. I think you can run Tessa in either category and come out okay. Yeah, yeah. So we'll see uh, what Warner Bros. decides to do with that because they're, yes. they're kind of they've got to uh, they they probably already have their cards laid out for uh, for the next. What a big months, year but. for Michael B. Jordan. Eh? Black yeah. Panther was an international hit. Oh yeah, it and made, Creed Two is a hit too, and yeah. it, that's his vehicle. Yeah, it's not a Marvel vehicle; it's his vehicle. Yes, because he's gone on record already saying that he's he'd love to do multiple Creed movies. Of course, yeah. Maybe and so this is this potentially sets up a funny situation where he's going to do his Creed movies, yep. and maybe twenty, thirty years down the road, he's going to be the Rocky, the, of the, the crusty new, old trainer, yeah, the yeah. crusty old trainer <laughs> of the new boxer that comes in, who yeah. might be Asian. <laughs> <laughs> so you have Rocky, uh, Creed, and yeah. some Asian dude. Yeah, why not <laughs> cover, cover all your uh, get um, all your uh, races there? They should get the uh, uh, the kid of the guy from the Raid movies, maybe. Oh yeah, maybe yeah. Jet Li's kid, Jackie Chan. Yeah, kid. one of those guys. It's one yeah. of those guys, you know, <laughs> like uh, maybe like flyweight guy. <laughs> Manny Pacquiao's kid. Yeah, or something like that. <laughs> exactly. Right. Uh, no, so definitely run out and see see Creed if if you have time uh, the next couple of weeks because we're kind of getting to the end now of like the the bigger genre type stuff. And well, it's going to get buried because we're getting so many yeah. releases. So it, we're in that big Christmas push now where all, all the studios are hammering out their big prestige movies that uh, that they're going to pin a lot of their Oscar dreams on. Um, so, you know, you're uh, right around Christmas, obviously we're getting stuff like vice and wider releases for stuff like beautiful boy and boy erased and, uh, and all those things, people, people are going to be, uh, distracted by those and they might miss out on Creed. Just one final note on Creed. So we were in a relatively empty theater cause it was a matinee, right. maybe half full, yeah. but there was a guy sitting next to me too. Okay. And to just to illustrate how gripping Creed is. Yeah. This guy was like leaning in during the fights nice. and the training montages, leaning back. He's clearly wiping his eyes during some of the more tender moments. Oh, wow. Which okay. I feel like are probably one of the stronger elements of the film because there are some really good, quiet moments. Yeah. The boxing is in your face, but when it's quiet, when it really needs to drive home a certain emotional point, it really does. And so when I see that from someone in the audience, I know that this film has not only. Um, affected me in a way it's affected other people the same way as well yes yeah so that's top notch now the other film that we saw yep was Wreck-It Ralph 2 yeah which is another great one Wreck-It Ralph 2 colon Ralph Breaks the Internet which has since been shortened to just Ralph Breaks the Internet yes if I'm not a racer what am I oh you're my best friend all we gotta do is find a part to fix your game everything goes back to the way it was but where are we gonna find that the internet what yes another one of those movies with like an unnecessarily complicated long title and I, I think it's fair to say that we both loved it or love is a strong word. Love is a strong word. I would say, like, I, I, I would think we both really liked it. Really liked it, yeah. Because, I mean, the first uh, Wreck It Ralph was maybe a bit of a surprise because, you know, these, these studios are, there's always been a bit of a, a bad reputation behind anything inspired by a video game. Yes. So, what Disney decided to do with the first Wreck It Ralph was to invent a fake video game and then make a movie about the characters who live inside it. Um, but 
but it's always meant to be subversive, which they continue yeah. in this one yeah. too. And they're trying to poke fun at some of the the old uh, like 1980s arcade tropes, yeah. um, and of course, do a whole bunch of licensing deals to bring real life characters and real life titles <laughs> into the mix and have them, you know, play uh, supporting roles or cameo roles uh, in some of the scenes. So, like in the first one, you see like Bowser from Super Mario Bros. or um, some of the, the characters from Street Fighter and Sonic the Hedgehog and stuff like that. Um, so then they kind kind of double down or maybe like quadruple down on that uh, method for this sequel where instead of being adding in more video game characters, they just go out to the internet and they just start gorging on as many internet jokes as they can possibly cram into an hour and 45 yeah. minutes. What I, I think appreciate most about Wrecker Ralph is the same thing I appreciate about Inside Out is that they can take a lot of intangible concepts, a lot of emotional concepts and illustrate it. I think that's the biggest strength of Wreck-It Ralph. There are a lot of puns in there. There are a lot of double entendres in there. But at the end of the day, the, the message has always been very consistent. They're not making jokes for making uh, for the sake of making a joke, for the sake of making a laugh. They're actually lampooning certain things in their own genre, in their own works, past works, that that would I don't think would be as acceptable or as um, considered mainstream today. Yeah. So the best part I think we both agree on was the introduction of the Disney princesses and any scene that involved them because it it was both subversive but also hilarious. Yeah, so the the context of this scene is... uh, It's very self-aware. It's very self-aware, and and I love movies that do that. Um, I I feel like a a movie will get extra points from me if it does something like that. But they don't go overboard, right? They don't go overboard. They don't don't push it uh, more than they need to, but they have uh, one of the main characters, Vanellope, played by Sarah Silverman. Um, She kind of... She's on the run from some enemy characters, and she pops into this part of the internet uh, themed after a Disney property called Oh My Disney, which I think is like a YouTube channel they run. They post like fun little riffs on some of their their content on there. And she, uh, Vanellope finds herself in this uh, uh, like green room for the Disney princesses. Um, and they have li- pretty much the whole uh, roster of like Ariel from Little Mermaid, Belle from Beauty and the Beast. I think it's every single princess. Every single one. Moana from Moana. Um, you know, Mulan's there. Mulan's there. Um, Merida mm-hmm. from Brave. Yeah. Uh, she's like the only Pixar, Pixar one. But um, uh, so oh, Elsa's there. Elsa's there. Elsa's not. Uh, Frozen isn't a Pixar film, though. It's not. No, it's like oh. Moana. It's like a, a same style of animation, but not Pixar. Oh, yeah. But doesn't Disney own Pixar? They do, but it's not Pixar. There's a joke in there actually, where yeah, like yeah, they, yeah. Uh, um, where they shun. The- <laughs> well, they have Merida, who's sort of like a Scottish princess. Yeah. She tries to offer some advice to Penelope, and she's speaking in this thick Scottish brogue. <laughs> no one and then, understands and then her. They, but instead of making the joke, the fact that Merida's Scottish, they say, "Oh, she's from the other studio." Yeah. So like, she's yeah. the only Pixar character. <laughs> that drew some laughs. Too. Yeah, that was great. But uh, no, that and I think Disney knew that that chunk of the movie was the strongest bit because they, I think, they released it in its entirety as an exclusive clip a couple of weeks before the release, um, and that they know that like Disney princess stuff just. You know, they make a lot of money on that, on, on those characters on their own and whatever kind of merchandise they sell and birthday cards and drugstore. It's like, it's just. I'm really glad that Disney is willing to go along with this. Yeah. Because it shows, I think, a certain type of maturity, sure. a certain type of willingness to change with the times, a willingness to accept that they've made mistakes in the past when it comes to representing 
um, female characters. Yeah, because there's an extended bit in the Disney Princess uh, main sequence where um, one of the characters starts, uh, she starts like singing about her dreams, and yeah. then like a, spot, <laughs> yeah. a spotlight comes down on yeah. her face, and she's the, you know to immediately like just uh, beautiful harmonies start uh, pouring out of her, and then uh, this confuses Vanellope, and she and the other princesses explain that this is just something that happens when you know they uh, <laughs> or look at your reflection in in water, important water, important water, yeah, and you'll see the dream manifest itself exactly um, um i love that they took this approach on the other hand it baffles me because before we watched the movie we got the trailer for the lion king which is basically a shot for shot remake of the the 1994 i think or 93 yeah i guess the the trailer that would have come out a year before the actual release yeah so anyway it's a shot for shot remake of the 90s um lion king film and i don't think in the trailer, at least, they didn't make any effort to change anything. No. They never made an effort to update it other than using, you know, CGI technology. Mm-hmm. Um, that is very different from Mulan and Beauty and the Beast and Cinderella, where they actually made changes to certain things yes. to update it. Well, now, there were some. There was some criticism from, like, hardcore Disney fans about Beauty and the Beast, where they said that that essentially was still a shot-for-shot remake yes. with, a f- with a few scenes added in yes. just to, to pad things out a bit. Which apparently was on the, like, uh, because Emma Watson pushed for it. Right. She wanted a little bit of, like, a more progressive uh, Belle. Belle character, yes. sure. Yeah. Um, so, and then Mulan, I guess, is, is a similar thing where... Well, it's like a musical now, right? You know, I mean, and you can't get Ernie Murphy to play the dragon. (laughs) Um, But they no, but there there was always songs in Mulan, but I think they're they're doing something a bit more enhanced with it. Um, But no, so this this whole bit with Disney kind of maturing or being willing to make fun of itself a little bit more that's that's definitely encouraging. Yeah, it's a pretty solid uh, weekend of movies. Yeah, and we're gonna go check out Claire Foy and. Girl in the Spider's Web yeah, in a couple hours, actually. Yeah, from when we're recording this, so uh, maybe we'll report back on that. For we've we've got to we've got to record at least one more uh, pod for the uh, uh, before the end of the year. Make it a clean forty, I think. Yeah. Um, so maybe we can. Uh, I'll be back in Toronto by that point, but um, uh, the we'll definitely report back on that. Well, we might have one more episode covering the awards, leading up to the awards. Oh yeah, so maybe we'll get two out yeah. uh, before the end of the year. Um, but yeah, I think that about does it for, for this episode. Of course, always new stuff on kinetoscope.ca. Uh, I'm very proud of our new email newsletter. So uh, <laughs> if, you, if you haven't subscribed to that, uh, that's a great way to stay on top of not only new episodes of this show, but also the latest articles that are getting posted on the site. Uh, some of the newest stuff that we've got up there is a review of Widows, which just opened uh, last weekend. Uh, a review of season six of House of Cards, which I hated. And I feel like it's completely unnecessary. Um, so if you want to see me tear that apart, the last three seasons were unnecessary. Yeah, you you might. Yeah, yeah. The, it's the, these shows dropped off in viewership, but yeah, uh, there's a whole. I, I get into this whole thing about how uh, um, Kevin Spacey leaving the show was simultaneously a good idea, but also a terrible idea. Uh huh. Yeah. There's good and bad to it, right? If you were ever a fan of House of Cards in the past, maybe you dropped off. Maybe just check this out. There's not too many spoilers in it, um, so uh, it it won't ruin your ruin your day. Um, And then watching the show might though. (laughs) (laughs) It's a waste of eight hours for sure. Um, And uh, of course, the uh, review of uh, Crimes of Grindelwald. So uh, check that out if you got some time. Um, But until the next episode, I'm Robert Snow in Vancouver, and I'm Jason Chen, also in Vancouver. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next time.